Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses, which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together. I'm so excited to continue our series with the Ask Me Anything it's been quite a while that you've been with us, Brother Gary. Uh, 26 months now, I guess it, it's been, as this is our 26th Ask Me Anything episode. So I do want to welcome you and thank you for uh, giving us your time and for answering these amazing questions. I've, I've been going through the list and I know that you've uh, also seen the list because you do such a great job preparing and <clears throat> getting a bunch of amazing sources together for the questions, but this list tonight, I think, is one of the uh, the most diverse and interesting lists that we've had. So I'm really excited to get into this show. Uh, but before we do that, Brother Gary, can you let everyone know where they can get a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Yeah, absolutely. And so happy to be back uh, with you tonight. And uh, yeah, you know, what's really interesting about the questions as well is that there are very few times where there's a repeat question over all of those, mm -hmm. uh, you know, months that we've been doing it. So it's a, it's an amazing array of questions for sure. So best way to get a hold of me and my book is on my website. That's the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com. Genesis Six with the number Six Conspiracy dot com. And on the website, you can get a signed copy of my book uh, by clicking on the Buy Now and then Buy from Author. Or you can also link over to Kindle on Amazon and get a digital version and or over to Amazon.com to get uh, uh, the book from them or to BarnesandNoble.com. So lots of ways to link through. And it's also available on most online uh, websites. And it's distributed through a company called Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania that distributes to the retailers. So if you did want to support your local bookstore, then you could have them ordered in if uh, if they don't have it on the shelf. So lots of ways to get a hold of me and uh, on the, or lots of ways to get a hold of my book. And you can get a hold of me through the website as well if you would like a little bit more information on some of the things that we might talk about or a document that I might mention that I would have. And I also have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the website so uh, people will get to know whether or not very quickly whether it's the book for them but i think the uh, table of contents will grab most people's attention right and if that doesn't give away how much information is there a generous excerpt of 98 chapters i mean how how generous can you get before you have an, your own book in itself just of the paraphrase that you're handing out that's amazing but Definitely amazing reports and reviews on that text. It's just so full of amazing information. Uh, but without further ado, I just want to say shalom to everybody that is joining. 
here on Revolution Radio and also everyone who's joining on the YouTube live stream at youtube.com slash Garcia. It's awesome to see you all. I appreciate you joining us tonight. It's going to be a great show. Just for those who are new who haven't joined us for an Ask Me Anything series yet, I welcome you and just an overview. We do have 14 questions on our pre-made list and then we will have time at the end, God willing, for some live questions. And normally Brother Gary has time for a few questions at least at the end of the show. So if you do have questions, please feel free to write them in the YouTube live stream chat and I will add them to the list. And if we do not get to them tonight, we will roll them over to the question list for next month. And yeah, with that said, we'll say a quick prayer and then we'll get into the awesome questions that we have prepared for tonight. So if you will, humble yourselves with me. Father God, we humble ourselves before you. We just thank you so much for the opportunity to continue breathing. We thank you so much for waking us up today, Father. We thank you for your mercy that you have on us, for your long-suffering towards us, and for the, the great love with which you've purchased us, as we know that you endured so much in the flesh for us. Father, when you incarnated into this world that you created, you took on the wages of our sins, and we're so undeserving, Father, but you love us like your children. And for those who do have children, I know that possibly they they understand your heart so well, Father, that, that your love is just so overwhelming, and that your love and your desire for us is greater than anything that that we as your children as as fallen people in this fallen world could do father that you can see past all that and you can call us into your arms that you welcome us back into your arms and we're so grateful for that we're so thankful for your mercy that you purchased for us on the cross and we just declare with a hallelujah we we declare your victory over death and we praise you the reigning King, the eternal and infinite God. We just love you and thank you so much for the promise of eternal life that we receive through you as you defeated death. And you give us that promise as well. We praise you and thank you and welcome your spirit here today, Father. Please guide Brother Gary as he answers these questions and let the listeners be moved to know you, to seek you, and to walk with you in love and in humbleness of heart as we seek to share your loving gospel and your wedding invitation with our neighbors and our family members and even our enemies. So we humble ourselves in thanksgiving and thank you for all things. In the name of the Messiah we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, so I will go ahead and get into Amen. the questions. Amen. All right. This first question comes from Karmic Dissuasion. Is there any verification or knowledge of the following two unrelated rumors? One, David soaked his stones in organite to kill Goliath. And two, the Torah is written out in full inside the Giza pyramid. Yeah, a couple of very good questions there. And just in case people aren't all that familiar with me, um, maybe it's the first time listening to the show tonight, I tend to base everything that 
uh, I read outside the Bible against what the Bible says. So I might look at it for context. I look at it for consistency and see whether or not there might be something there that tells us a little bit more of the story. But I still measure it up against the Bible. So these two questions are very, very interesting because they, you know, they're related to the Bible, but they're rumors, mythologies, and, and not really um, true legends, but, you know, sort of, I think, you know, maybe rumor is, is probably the, the best way of doing it and things that are talked about. So the first one is, is about David soaking his stones in organite to kill Goliath. And organite, for people who may not be familiar with it, it kind of breaks down into two, maybe three different things that I won't go into a ton of it. It's more occult than anything else. But as a substance that the soap that the stones would have been soaked into would be, uh, as my understanding of it, would be crystals and uh, metal in resin. So that means David would have had to have prepared for this in advance and would have somehow had to carry it. And then soaking in it, one would presume they would have to soak fair bit in it and the question is was that used to kill goliath another aspect of organite and it has its own sort of almost new age sort of mythos about it today that it's got a lot to do with pyramids and things like that and i won't go into that so there's a, a few different aspects of it the accounting in first samuel 1754 talks about uh, david taking the head of goliath so what david did when he was approaching Goliath, who was uh, laughing at him and mocking him, he picked up five smooth stones out of the brook. So he wouldn't have really had time to prepare that in this substance. And certainly I can't see it, that the brook would have it. And he didn't seem to have time to do that. And we don't get any details that that's what he did. And he didn't use the five stones to kill Goliath. He used it to bring him down, stun him. So he sunk the forehead between Goliath's eyes, essentially, and he fell over. And then he went up to Goliath, took his sword from uh, away from Goliath, who was lying there, and then took Goliath's head and held it above his head. And then they took Goliath's head elsewhere after the battle because this was the preamble to uh, a great battle and a great victory for israel who chased after the philistines afterwards who were in a state of panic because the greatest warrior that was probably since og and some of the mythologies around life was even he was a greater warrior than king og the greatest warrior since the flood so only nephilim before the flood would have been you know, had greater warriors amongst them. So that's how powerful Goliath was. And this boy who was teenage, uh, you know, took him down quickly and fairly easily and with complete surprise. So no details in the Bible to substantiate that about the organite. And just so that people might be asking, well, why would he choose five stones? And I'm talking about David. Philistines were the Philistine Empire was made up of a five city state pentapolis. And so Goliath was a Gittite and from Gath. And typically you have Gath and the other five cities are ruled over by Rephaim uh, or 
branches of the Raphaim, and Gath was a notable city of the Anakim. So it seems likely that Goliath may have been Anakim and likely the king of of Gath that David killed. And David was not thinking he was going to miss because he would have been a very accurate slingers as Israelites were very famous for, especially their left-handed uh, hurlers of stones um they could you know hit people between uh, the eyes at a great great distance um as recorded in the bible um where i get that information from so what he was preparing for was he thought he might have to kill all five kings that day so five stones but the shock didn't prove out to be that case and then uh the king that uh, replaces uh, David, he's the one who takes in David after Saul puts Saul, uh, David to the run and he has to go uh, outside of Israel for a while. He becomes a mercenary for the Philistines. And I think it was in honor of David's courage, his reputation that he built, and that the, you know, the king at that time was um, – almost in debt of David for having him promoted. So just sort of an interesting sort of couple of deductions I made about the Samuel story. So the second one is about is the Torah written out in full inside the Giza pyramid. And again, I've heard that rumor, I've heard that said, but and I've actually tried to find information out on this, but I can't get any reliable proof that that, that is the case. Uh, and or when that Torah would have been written out. And I'm thinking the Torah is probably the complete Old Testament as opposed to the first five books. And what's at odds with trying to figure out whether or not it's actually in the pyramids is that the timing doesn't seem to sort of kind of work with biblical chronology. What I mean by that is, yes, Israel was in Egypt for 400 years as slaves and they may have even participated in building the pyramids and i guess perhaps that might go to how they might have written the torah in the pyramids but they didn't have the torah at that time the torah and the pentateuch was given to moses well the pentateuch was given to moses after they had left egypt and then the rest of the old testament was written with a lot of its history and, you know, with the prophets and the Psalms were all sort of put together later. Now, maybe the Torah uh, isn't here representing the complete Old Testament, maybe the Pentateuch, but Moses didn't have the Pentateuch until after they had left Egypt. So the chronology doesn't, in terms of the time frame, doesn't make sense. And if it was the, a larger version, then when, or even the smaller version, is when would they have gone back into the pyramids to write it, unless God had it written inside the pyramid? But again, we don't get anything in the Bible about this. So it's interesting. Um, it would be quite the thing if it was true. It would certainly be things that the secular scientists, and Egyptologists and secret societies and royal bloodlines around the world would not want out there if it was true. So they would try and keep it secret simply because of the implications that it would have that would be totally at odds with all of their viewpoints. But I have no evidence that that is actually there. But if somebody does have some evidence on it, I'd love to see it because I just think that would be an awesome thing.
Yeah, that would be really awesome. Uh, but you did make some very good points uh, regarding the timing. So definitely, as always, appreciate that answer. We'll move on to the next one, which I think is another fascinating question that comes from AP. Was Jesus a time traveler? Um, well, we don't get evidence that he was. Not that I think anything is impossible for the word who became Jesus um, or for God or, or for the Holy Spirit. But we don't get evidence from the Bible again that he was a time traveler. What we do understand is he was the first of creation and that the word became flesh. And that turned out to be, you know, the oikateri and the body and the soul that was prepared by the Holy Spirit within Mary for the word to have a dwelling place, which is the uh, meaning of oikateri and a dwelling place for his spirit. Because he's a spirit being the word as God is, as angels are. And to interact in this world, you need a physical uh, oikaterian body to actually physically interact. So I don't think... We look at him as a time traveler. I think maybe a better perspective of it, and who knows, time travel may be against the law. We don't know that, but um, we have no evidence that uh, that they time travel. They do visions, and as God provides the vision to the prophets, um, and as Jesus would provide prophecy when he was here, they would understand because of the alpha omega aspect of them and the omnipotent type of brain power that they would have they would understand how things would unfold they know from the beginning what is going to happen to the end and in revelation 22 13 jesus is called alpha omega just as god is called alpha omega and time is a physical thing that we would understand it for the physical world. So with them being in a spiritual realm, time would have a different sort of perspective and a sort of outlying. It's almost meaningless because there's, you know, they are forever. And so they're almost above the physical world, almost above time, looking down on things with the ability to see and calculate all the permutation and odds, which it would be just, impossible to even calculate, which would be how intelligent God is because he's all-knowing, so he would know these things. And, you know, the word Jesus is in perfect harmony as is the Holy Spirit, so they would know that. And from a physical to spiritual understanding in terms of time, we get a hint of that in 2 Peter 3.8, which is a day is like a thousand years for God and those in heaven because of that immortality. And so time would be playing out in a different sort of way in that realm, in that dimension. And But time would be still essentially meaningless. I think they're still linear, but I don't think they were, they were time traveling. And I think that if they did, then there's things that maybe Jesus couldn't look at if he was a time traveler, and that makes no sense to me. And the reason why I say that is because in Matthew 24, 36, he says that he doesn't know the exact day and the hour of his coming. Only God knows that. And that is something that is kept at the ultimate secrecy level 
because it's probably one of the most important things that is going to happen and is going to convict the spurious forces, the fallen Nephilim, that was with an A, not an E, the, the fallen angels, and all of those who follow them. And so uh, Jesus would have known about the resurrection. He knew he was going to be crucified. The angels didn't know about it, but Jesus knew about it. But yet Jesus says he doesn't know the exact day or hour of his coming back. But I'm sure he has the ability to know pretty darn close, but that secret isn't there. And if he's a time traveler, he could easily do that. And last time travel was forbidden or there's parameters put around in time travel. But we don't get time travel um, detailed in the Bible. What we get is visions of the future. And in terms of uh, the, the prophets uh, trying to write down and understand what they are and in a way that could be sort of understood in the language of the day, but could be also understood in the time of their unfolding or just before, if people wanted to, to, to dig in. But Jesus, he didn't really use those types of imagery. He gave pretty specific details. So that goes to that Alpha Omega aspect. But I just thought I'd throw in some of that mystery part in terms of uh, when Jesus comes back, because that's, that is, you know, really what everything sort of depends upon for us. And that needs to be fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled in a way that the angels can't fully anticipate the fallen angels. Yeah, really good points. I appreciate that answer. Uh, in, in my understanding, the Messiah in Revelation is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And, you know, he who created time, of course, is outside of time. Uh, but, you know, we being in limited perspectives and in, in the flesh and with limited understanding, I don't think that we can fathom all the ways that the Most High operates. Uh, but definitely a really interesting question. And I, I've always been fascinated by time travel, of course. Uh, like you said, for us created beings, I I don't see that as a possibility even. Uh, I definitely don't believe in, you know, well, uh, the back, back to the Future, I think, was the, the old movie. And, yeah, I don't believe that we're going to be time traveling. I know that that's a, a very big deception in my generation with all these new movies and entertainment and, uh, you know, theoretical physics coming out that, we can do time traveling and that time operates at different speeds according to where you are in proximity to the sun and, you know, gravitational fields and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't, I don't believe in, uh, well, in what, well, you know, what, what can be done in theory may not be what God will permit as well. Right. Yeah. He's, he's the one that can operate outside of his creation and I guess you know maybe he gave other entities that opportunity as well I'm not sure he knows and he's in control so I'm not too worried about it but really awesome question thanks for uh, bringing that up and thanks for that answer brother Gary so our next question comes from Melissa Ben Tanker are there any entities that use a vibrating frequency to manipulate the physical world Well, I would think probably the answer is is yes. Uh, you know, we do know that 
um, vibrating frequencies in science can make things kind of elevate or they can do things that can tear sort of things down. We do know that Jericho, when the trumpets blew, it was likely uh, a sort of a vibrating frequency that was hit that was able to bring those uh, walls tumbling down from the blowing of the trumpets and the shouting. And um, I think that goes to the understanding that perhaps other beings can do that. And so when I talk about other beings, I tend to go to the fallen angels who might have the skill to uh, to do that. And then maybe the, the loyal angels do in terms of what they're doing in ways of serving God. But if I look at what the fallen angels might use them for, uh, and in that sort of aspect, I would... Check, 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 check. All right, I might have to restart my Skype as well. I apologize for that internet outage, everyone. Okay, can you hear me? Gary? I can hear you. Okay, I'm sorry. Yep, I we, can hear we you. We had a lightning storm yep. last week, and uh, since then it, it <laughs> oh, yeah. fried the ethernet cord <laughs> yep. on my computer, so we're connected via Wi-Fi. So <laughs> it seems like every few yep. hours I get yep. a random outage. Uh, we do have a new modem that is coming in the mail, so prayerfully everything will be fixed with that. But, yeah, I apologize for that. Uh, yeah, I, I lost you about a minute ago. Was there anything okay. else that you wanted to touch so, on? Well, I don't, and I don't know whether the audience was hearing me or not, but I know we were talking about the vibrating frequency, and I was talking about Jericho and how they brought the walls down and – uh, so I don't know whether you heard that part or not. And then I was just moving into Ezekiel 28 and 13 um, with the tabrets and the tambourines or, and or the pipes that Satan was created with. And we know fallen angels played music and they did things with music as an, an extension of their power. And music has has a lot of math in there and it has wavelength in there. So just as the trumpets were used to create a vibrating frequency to bring the walls down, one would presume such intelligent beings as, as the angelic realm would be able to do things with vibrating frequency to, uh, to elevate things, create maybe anti-gravity. Who knows what they would use it for? Certainly beyond my ability to understand all the different things that they might be able to do with it. And then when you get into some of these other gods, you've got like the flute. And the flute's used for a number of things. But again, it's just how they're using the frequency of music to control people as well. So are there beings that have the ability to uh, manipulate uh, vibrating frequency i think there is and i think some of that knowledge has been passed on to their spurious offspring and um, their followers so in the occult uh, world i think that's a, that's a very plays a very big role in in things that they do and things that they believe and they're always trying to develop that even more as part of developing the seven sacred sciences and the illicit knowledge from heaven yeah, really great question. 
Great answer again. I feel like these past two questions might have came from uh, people who watched The Flash. The I don't know if you've ever heard of the the DC comic superhero The Flash, but uh, I I used to watch this a while ago, and he had like the super speed power, right? And he was able to time travel by doing super speed, and also he was able to like vibrate and manipulate things and like they called it phasing through walls and stuff yeah really interesting uh and i i appreciate the modest answer that you know i don't know (laughs) you know but definitely really great points you know with the, the pipes that the enemy was created with and you know thinking about david who was able to like heal with his music you know there's definitely some information out there that we we just can't even uh, begin to imagine, I believe. Uh, but we'll move on to our next question that comes from John Park. Will people on the Earth now not be at the millennium? Yeah, the question says, do you mean that people on the Earth now will not be at the millennium? And I'm probably thinking that uh, John might be referring to some of the answers that I provided on on the end time and so i'll start with the uh the finish and sort of rebuild it for people is i certainly do believe that people on the earth now will be in the millennium as opposed to not i mean not everybody's going to make it that are living now but if we are in the last generation then i think there's going to be survivors into the millennium and i think that we you can look at that in, in a couple of different ways. So all of the people that do not take the mark of the beast and do not worship Satan and do not worship Antichrist and who are not killed will earn their salvation through fire, just as the ones who are martyred. I, I believe those people, because they have come back to Jesus and to God, that they will help repopulate the earth so there'll be people from all nations around the world that will help repopulate in addition to israel and judah because in the end time there's going to be an exodus of israel and an awakening of israel and an exodus alongside visible judah around the world to meet up with judah who had escaped three and a half years before at the time of the abomination to the wilderness where God protected them for three and a half years from Satan and and Antichrist. And so there's going to be many of those who uh, will survive into the millennium as well to populate the earth. And we also get in Revelation 20, we get the great resurgence so to speak, of the Gog and Magog war after Satan is released after a thousand years. So that would imply descendants from that Gog and Magog alliance that's recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And noting that Ezekiel 39 says the second exodus will happen after the Gog war. And noting that Ezekiel 38 says that the Gog war will happen in the end time in the latter times 
um, all terms that are essentially for the last seven years. So th this is a war that I think lines up with Revelation 9, um, just before the midpoint of the last seven years and with Joel 1 and 2, but not Joel 3, because that lines up with, Joel 3 lines up with Armageddon. So I think there's those people that are going to survive physically in the world. And of course, those who died by refusing to take the mark of the beast and refusing to worship Satan and refusing to worship Antichrist and, and understand all three of those things are you can't do. Um, if you're going to be resurrected and killed or survive into the millennium. So those who were killed for not taking the mark, they'll be resurrected to rule Jesus for the thousand years. So we know that um, there are a number of resurrections before that. So we have at the time of Jesus coming uh, and before those who are killed for taking the mark of the beast, you have the rapture and those who died in Christ. And that happens after the first fruits, all of those who are martyred. And so the martyring goes on after the first fruits are arisen, which is shown in Revelation 6, who are told to wait a little bit longer for the tribulation of the saints. That happens in the first three and a half years, and that's the tribulation that Matthew is talking about in Matthew 24, 8 to 9, about the great affliction. And affliction is the Greek word Philippians, which is used for tribulation everywhere else, including later in Matthew and also used in Mark. And what's interesting about that is, is that Matthew will go on, or Jesus' account in Matthew will go on that after the abomination is the tribulation of the world not seen since the beginning of time. And that is when the people who are refusing to take the mark are being killed and also those who survive and didn't take the mark or worship Antichrist or worship Satan will still be alive to, to repopulate the, um, the millennium. And so the resurrection order is Christ the first fruits and then when he comes, those who are still alive and those who fell asleep in Jesus but not were not martyred. And we have the first fruits that are taken right from, we have Revelation 6, which is basically at the start. And I think the last seven years actually start at the end of Revelation 6 and the beginning of Revelation 7 with the 144,000 who are pictured as first fruits in heaven in Revelation 14, which is three and a half years later. We also have the two witnesses who are going to prophesy for 42 months. So everything sort of lines up with that. So. I know I, I probably built more around the answer, but just in case it was in reference to with all of the different sort of resurrections and different peoples, um, that if I said in any way that people do not repopulate um, in the millennium and people of the last generation, um, not all of them will survive, but some will survive into the millennium. Awesome. Thank you for that great answer. Our next question comes from Iliam Tell. Do you ever use the eSword program? Well, when I saw the question, I looked it up. So the answer is no. It looks like a terrific uh, program, <laughs> though, um, and brings a lot of different sort of sources and everything together. So I'm going to have a little bit different look at it. Um, 
because I use a whole bunch of individual sources and I may not go to something like the eSword program, but I will give it a good look over. And the reason why I might not use it is, is I have my preferences on sources. And so I have, you know, the, the, the Septuagint that I want. I have, you know, one that uh, also has the, you know, the Septuagint, for example, also has the Greek and the English there that matches up with my just English version. And I have separate Bibles that I use. Um, I use an access Bible that has an Apocrypha as opposed to some of the other ones with the Apocrypha. I have my favorite uh, King James Version Bible. I have, I have, you know, I use six different Bibles um, to try and triangulate the different English and get a better understanding. And then I like to be able to link back to the original Hebrew and the original uh, Greek with, uh, um, you know, a, a, a online Bible that links back to those words and then i have my favorites in those ones and i have one that act you know works more quickly and i can find things more quickly but its concordance doesn't give me the full length and the detail i want so i want the greater detail and then sometimes i even want more detail because i'm such a nerd on these things and i you know i have my own copy of strong's concordance cyclopedia which all of the strong is based on and I get even more information in terms of what shows up in most of the Bible dictionaries or the strong concordance so it may not satisfy all of those sort of obsessions that I have as a contrarian that I just want I want the right sources that I think are the right sources that pulls things together but I want all the, all the information I don't want the shortcut version so but I'll have a good look at this because it looked like an amazing amazing uh, program there are so many great resources to help you in studying the Bible. And one of the ones that I like a lot is a free app that you can get on uh, most cell phones and also just by going to blueletterbible.com. They have a tools function while you're reading through your Bible, any, any verse, any book, any chapter, and you can click on the verse, check the tools out for that verse. You can see the interlinear and the concordance and it'll break it down into the Hebrew. It actually shows you uh, the Hebrew, the Greek, or the Aramaic that the verse was written in. So you can actually, you know, if you understand a little bit of the language, you can dissect it further. You can also click on each one of those words to see every single time it was used in the scriptures. Uh, and I, oh man, I just love just the fact that we have a search bar where we can search up a word and and it'll show us everywhere in the bible that that word was used is just an amazing resource you know we're just so blessed i pray that we don't take that for granted uh, but we'll move on to the next question that comes from dale stevenson is the pentagram related to the star of remphan We've had some Rumpfen questions in the past, and uh, but not quite in this sort of manner. And so I, I really like this question because there's a lot of interesting kind of connections. And so I'm just going to talk a little bit about it. And if people aren't familiar with the Star of Rumpfen, it comes up in Acts 7.43, and you should read the verses before and after again to get the right context. But it's basically um, the same 
God that is being talked about in, in Amos 5.26 with Molech and, and Chion. And uh, Molech is either a son of Baal or another name for, for, for Baal. And the images of those star gods that were being worshipped in, in, in Amos 5.26. But the verse of Rumpen only, Rumpen only shows once in um, the Bible, and that's in, in, in the book of Acts. And so, what is this uh, book of Remphim, and, and, and how does you know is how could it be connected to um, the pentagram? So, the basic place where you're kind of starting is that it's it's a star, um, and once you understand that a star has either six sides or five sides five sides and five is a pen five sided star is a pentagram you start to get um a possibility that maybe there's a there's a connection here um so digging into that a little bit further um in deuteronomy 4 the israelites were instructed not to worship the sun the moon or the stars and by implication um the planets and in the book of Jude, one thirteen, um, you have these things called wandering stars. And uh, stars, you know, goes back to uh, the Greek word for um, for star. And but it's the wandering part that goes back to Greek uh, planetes and planos. Um, and planos being sort of like deceiving. So in this case, uh, it's or planetes is rooted in planos, meaning deceiving. So this is a deceiving star, an imposter star, a misleading star. And these are fallen angels, right? So these are part of the ruling council of the gods and some of the more important stars that are that are out there. And so then I, as I look into things, I like to look at, okay, so if these are possibly planets, what planet might this star be? as opposed to all the other stars in the universe. And if you look into the occult, you have basically set, you know, seven gods that are represented in uh, almost all cultures of you know, showing the sun and the moon and planets like Saturn and Jupiter. And you get seven of them in total as, as the most important sort of angels in their, in their pantheon. And in Babylon, a lot of people look at... Um, the star in Amos 5.26 for Moloch and Chion is being a Babylon god as opposed to an Egyptian god. And that that planet would be Saturn. But we don't get any references into the Bible as the star as being Saturn, which would be representing the parent god um, of the, that pyramid of seven of, of seven angels represented by the sun, moon, and, and the seven and the five other planets that, that go along with it. And, and so he would be at the apex. And then typically you're going to have his son as sort of number two, which is the offspring god, which are the gods that replace the parent god. So typically Saturn is related to Satan. But again, we don't get Saturn in there. But what we do get is um, some other terms that might lead us into this direction that we're going with this pentagram. And you get this order of stars that are called the morning stars. 
And, you know, the, the best uh, place to look at those is this order that's in Job 38.7 with the sons of God at the time of creation, these morning stars. And that leads you into the connection into Isaiah 14.12 um, with uh, Hillel ben Shakar, Hillel, son of the morning, or Lucifer, son of the dawn, or son of the morning, as it's uh, also translated in, or as Daystar. And typically, Lucifer is the Italian word inserted into the English Bible for the Hebrew word Hillel, which is likely one of the names of Satan, uh, with ending in E-L. And Lucifer is also a derivative and part of the meaning of the planet Venus. And of course, Venus is very much associated with this morning star, and it's also an evening star. So for six months of the year, it's the morning star and rises and can be seen as the planet Venus. And then in the evening star, it is for six months of the year more of a twilight star as opposed to sunrise star. And where I'm going with this is that Venus um, is an allegory for Satan in the occult. And Venus has an orbit that when you overlay it against the backdrop of the zodiac, it forms a five-pointed star every eight years. So there's a lot of thought that goes along with the star of Rumpfen, that this is, you know, the star uh, of uh, Baal, um, who took over from um, El. And of course, if you're looking at that from a Greek perspective, that would be Zeus taking over from um, uh, Kronos. Or in the Roman pantheon, it would have been uh, Jupiter, taking over from Saturn. And that's where those connections sort of come back together. So the star Arempham could be a pentagram, but it could be also a six-sided star uh, that is popular in the occult as well. But the thing is, we're not told, but all of the connections that we get with the morning star and the occult and these gods of the occult, understanding that we're dealing with the Balim, of Mount Hermon after the flood by the names of these, and these are the offspring gods, point to uh, a bit of a, 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 a pentagram and an aligning with Satan because just as in Freemasonry, you have Osiris, which is the equivalent of Baal, which is the equivalent of Jupiter, which is the equivalent of Zeus to give you some cross-pantheon comparisons is Osiris is an allegory for Lucifer, an allegory for the parent god, for the great architect of the universe. And that sort of points back again and closes the circle that the star of Rumpham of the Balim might be more of the star of, of Baal representing and an allegory for Satan. So, so that's kind of how I look at it, but we don't get a lot of really good information about this, but it's noted in two different versions, one in the Old Testament and then Rumpham, as it's called in, um, in, in the New Testament. But when you take that back to its meaning in, in Greek and the concordance, it leads you back to Amos 5.26. Excellent. Thank you very much for that thorough answer. So we have about 
eight minutes left until we go into our first break. So we'll bring up the next question that comes from Jadiman. A secret society insider. Oh, okay. Um, just a precursor to this question. It is a hypothetical, which I thought was a really interesting question. And yeah, we'll see uh, how you would like to answer this one. So the hypothetical situation is a secret society insider granted you a chance to ask him any question, which he then refused to answer. What did you ask him? And what do you think the answer to that question is? Well, um, it's actually for me not a hypothetical. And uh, ex Damon might have heard me um, talk about the story. Uh, I was doing research for the Genesis 6 conspiracy, and I was reading a book by, um, from Knight and Lomas. And I was sitting beside uh, an elderly gentleman who took an interest in what I was reading. And as we began to talk, he said, you know, I'm very glad that you're interested in this stuff and you're going to learn a lot from them. And those guys kind of really know, know what they're talking about. And then he said, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a 33rd degree uh, Scottish Freemason. And uh, I said, oh, really? And he says, yeah. And he says, and he says, you, you seem like, you know, kind of an inquisitive guy and you're doing all this sort of research. And he says, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. We'll have some fun here because it was a long flight. And, he said, uh, I'm going to show you a symbol on, on one of my rings. And if you can guess that symbol, you can ask me anything that you want. And, I, and, and he said, he said, they said, no, that's, that's maybe not anything you want. That's limited to about three questions. So he showed me the ring and I, and I, I didn't realize what it was at the beginning. And I asked for more time. And what it was, was this single line that had two dots in the middle on either side. And so I went back to doing my work and I was thinking we're getting, oh, probably within an hour of landing or so. And finally he says, well, so do you think you can answer the question? He's just kind of laughing, right? And I said, I don't know whether I do or not, but I said, I'll, I'll try. I said, so what I'm seeing is this line and it's either a stick or a cane or, you know, a, a shepherd's pole or something like that. And then I see these two dots and they could be circles or they could be rocks or they could be balls. And I was going through a bunch of things. But I said, if I think about Freemasonry and Masonry, ancient Masonry, I said, I would go with two balls and a cane. And so to me, it would represent two ball cane, one of your patriarchs um, from before the flood. He said, wow, he got it. So he says, oh, yeah. he says ask the questions. So I and I'd been thinking about the questions, but I didn't I wasn't sure I was going to actually get that shot. So the the first question um, I asked, I, I did a kind of a uh, preliminary to it. And I, and I already understood that an adept, which he was as a 33rd degree, which would be third degree York, right? I asked him, I said, so I understand at the third, you know, 33rd degree or the third degree that you learn secrets uh, of who the God is and evidence thereof that would overturn every preconceived belief that you had. And my second question I said was, how many degrees are there? Because I knew that if you're going to oversee Mason lodges there were five degrees and i would like to know how many because i've heard seven nine 
11, 13, and the higher degrees are all completed mostly by, well, not all completed by pure bloods, and they're initiated from childhood, so they're adepts by the time they become adults. And then the third question was, is um, what or the main secrets, not all of them, because they might have thousands, but what would be the main secrets of each of those degrees at the upper levels? And he just said, he says, he says, you know, I can't answer any of those questions. I said, but you made a deal. He said, yeah, but you're not supposed to ask questions like that. And then he refused to answer. But he says, I'll talk about lower lower Masonic stuff if you want. So we had a chat about that. But it was that's kind of worthless because unless you're an adept, you don't get all the information. You don't know what all the allegories are. You're just considered as mundane as people outside the craft. That is... A fascinating story. I don't know if I've heard that one before and brain dumped it, uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. And I was sitting here racking my brain with what what could that be? Uh, you know, the signet on the ring. And wow, that was a great answer. I'm I'm really impressed, Gary. But uh, you know, of course, that's what we should come well, to expect. Couple, I had from a couple you. hours to work it out. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> And the, and, and the thing is, is I'm reading the book and I'm taking notes and it's got the character Tubal Cain in there, but does it come to me right away? No. <laughs> it's like sitting in front of me. He probably was, was just playing with me thinking like, you know, he's got it right there in front of him, but they're, they're, he's mundane. There's no way he'll figure it out. I mean, right. you know, he's not of the bloodline. So, I mean, he's too stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Uh you know, uh, maybe somebody in my generation would have said the Facebook logo or something like that. Uh, not saying, well, I am saying that the Facebook logo is definitely looks like Tubal Cain. Uh, yeah. But it's interesting to think that uh, we're, certainly reading, does. we're reading in the writings of Abraham. I'm not sure if you, you've read this one. Uh, are you familiar with that text? Well, I'll, I'll continue on. No, I don't think I am. Okay. Um, it is a really interesting text, and it actually talks about how the sister of Tubal Cain was uh, Nama, and how she was actually one of the wives of Noah and was actually the mother of uh, Ham. So, yeah, we'll. We'll be right back right after this. Uh, we appreciate everybody for joining in. Uh, just hang on, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com.
truth seekers are constantly studying alone. But there is a place where we can come together. The Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia, meant for those who've forsaken churchianity, but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. tried for years and years to use passive resistance and loud voices to make a change. The time is over. Your governments around the world have no other goal than to decimate your entire existence. At the hands of the bankers and the elites. The war is coming and it's your choice to decide if you want to be a warrior or a victim denial is not a choice anymore revolution radio freedomslips.com the number one listener supported radio station on the planet not giving up revolution Radio, 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 radio. All right, thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, welcome back, everyone. 
I'm your host, Justin James Garcia, and tonight I have a special guest, author and researcher Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, an amazing book, an amazing researcher, and this is our Ask Me Anything monthly episode where we're going through a pre-made list of 14 questions. Before we move on to some live questions, we appreciate everybody joining in on Revolution Radio and for everybody who's joining on the YouTube live stream uh, before we get back into the question list, I wanted to bring up one question that we had from Brother Tommy Anakin in the YouTube live chat. He asked, who's going to Sacred Word Revealed 2022? Great question. And yes, I'm so excited. We are prayerfully, God willing, going to be able to meet up again for Sacred Word Revealed 2022. Be on the lookout for more information and mark your calendars. I believe it's May 27th through 29th of 2022. And yeah, we would love to see you all there. But more information will follow. Just uh, keep that you know, fresh in your minds. And we'll get back to this episode. But before we do, Brother Gary, uh, for everybody who's just now tuning in, could you please remind us where we could grab a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Yes, the best place uh, to go, the most simplest place to go, is to go to my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com, Genesis6Conspiracy with the number 6, Conspiracy.com. And on there, on that website, you can not only get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters to make sure it's the right book for you, um, but you can also get a signed copy from me or link over to BarnesandNoble.com or to Amazon. Amazon.com or to uh, the Kindle version. Um, and so you've got lots of options on that website to um, purchase the book or you can support a local, local bookstore. And if they don't have it on the shelf, they can order it in through Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania who distributes the book. And it's available on most online bookstores as well. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. Definitely encourage everyone, if you have not gotten a copy of that, you definitely should. It's an amazing text, great resource. But we'll move on to the next question. Oh, I was touching on the writings of Abraham. It was just uh, an interesting text that I was sharing that spoke of Tubal-Cain's descendants uh, through his, not his direct descendants, but his bloodline descendants through Nama, who was supposedly one of the wives of Noah and the mother of Ham and uh, of course the matriarch of the Canaanites uh, so interesting concept uh, according to the text she did not survive the flood so yeah. uh, interesting uh, what, what was your thoughts about that possibility well I mean Nama would have been a popular name so just as Enoch you have one on both lineages and you have also um, Lamech on both lineages. And then all the other names on Cain's line and the Seth line, they almost have a phonetically similar or identical. It's a little bit different, but they sound pretty much the same. The uh, book of, um, of, not Jubilees, um, Book of Yasher, although not super reliable, um, in terms of some of the issues with it. We don't have an original Hebrew manuscript of it either. Um, but it talks about Nama as Noah's wife, but as the daughter of Enoch, 
Now, one presumes they're talking about Enoch of the Seth line, but occultists would say Nama, daughter of Enoch, son of Cain, but that would be too many generations, I think. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff to consider. I appreciate your comment on that. So we'll get back to the questions. This question comes from Hugs to Bear. How did Melchizedek return to Earth if he was in heaven during the flood? This is from the Slavonic version of Second Enoch. And was Melchizedek a direct continuation of Enoch's priesthood? Yeah, a good question. Um, so I like First Enoch a lot. Uh, second Enoch, not so much. Third Enoch, even less. And anything from the Book of Giants, even less. I think that some of it's interesting, um, but they are corrupted significantly. So we have to be careful um, and when we're looking at that to see what some of the consistencies might be. Uh, so this comes from Second Book of Enoch, uh, chapters 64 through 73. And um, Melchizedek, um, in this case, is in the priest of Enoch's priesthood. And he is the da he's the he is the uh, offspring of Nier and Sophanim, and and Nier is a priest in the uh, Enoch's um, priesthood, and this is declared like a virgin birth in terms of how it's played out, um, even though it's not. It's just that they're. You know, they're so old in age, and for some reason they're trying to cover all of these things up. None of that really makes sense to me, but um, that's the story that goes with it. And then the baby is taken to heaven, and then that seems to be, as I understand the text, the same Melchizedek that be, you know, is the king of Salem that's going to bless um, Abraham. So it's an interesting story, but we also need to understand that. Um, if this is a corrupted occultic version or one that's just completely been corrupted, it may have been, you know, a good original book, but so corrupted that the Melchizedek order has an occult order and it has the one that the Bible talks about. And within the secret societies, and there's also gospels of Melchizedek in the, in the Gnostic gospels as well, um, just to sort of underline that. And in that sort of thought and within the conflation of that into the Israelite order of Melchizedek and the Canaanite one, and understanding that Melchizedek comes out of a Jebusite city as a priest, uh, which is kind of interesting, but I'm going to cover that off here in a second. Um, you have uh, this Melchizedek who is going to bless Abraham, who is the one that's going to you know, create monotheism and God is going to use him to do so and create the nation of, of Israel. So that's kind of the, the second Enoch version of it. And I would, you know, I go back and look at it and say, what is, what does the Bible say on this? And then see how that measures up. And although it seems to be a possibility if you're just reading the story about Abraham and you, you look at him as a Jebusite, what we don't get scripturally in the Old Testament is his genealogy. And this is not that far after the flood. So that would be known if there was a genealogy there, but we don't get it. 
which is kind of odd for this super important priest that comes out of Jerusalem, which is God's holy city that's still in control of the Jebusites and will be until the time of David, even though Israel had taken, you know, the rest of the of the covenant land um, at the end of Joshua's life that they were going to take. You have this individual that comes out of nowhere. And it kind of get answered for us in the book of Hebrews as it's talking about the Melchizedek order that Jesus is going to take over. And he, you know, he's, he's, he earns it through the resurrection and that he's immortal and there's no longer a requirement for the Levite priesthood or uh, somebody else to, to lead it because he is, he's going to be the priest before God, almost resolving the fall of Satan issue because uh, Satan, as I said earlier in the show, it was like a seraphim. He's a dragon and a serpent. And in Isaiah 6, these are the angels that work before God in the fiery stones of the altar. So they work as sort of ministers and they're in charge of government and um, religion as it sort of seems to be falling out of their responsibility, particularly as we look at the watchers out of, out of Daniel 4. But that's a that's another rabbit hole. But what happens with Isaiah is, is that one of the seraphims takes a fiery stone out of the altar of God to put it on the lips of Isaiah to take the sin away as, as a priest would. And so Satan had nine jewels, just of the Levites, which representing what was going to be, I think, a higher order, then later have 12 jewels. And I think both of those things point to that Satan was not only um, cherubim and seraphim, but the high priest. And I think the word becoming flesh is, resolves the Melchizedek high priesthood that Jesus is going to be the high priest and fulfills and will be forever the high priest before God as the, as the word made flesh. And so in Hebrews 7, 3, we learn that Melchizedek did not have a mother and a father. There is no genealogy, which is an impossibility, unless this is a uh, fallen angel, or this is an angel, or this is the word who made himself visible to Abraham to bless him with the highest blessing somebody could ever have, who was going to bring about the nation of hope, the nation of Israel, who would produce the tribe of Judah, who would produce David as an ancestor for Jesus, who was going to be made flesh by the Holy Spirit, providing that Oikaterian and Mary 2,000 years later, and would succeed to be the head priest of the Melchizedek order. And so I think that this second Enoch version is more of a counterfeit. And just as Lucifer or Satan wanted to have a realm like God, to raise his throne into heaven, to be like God, everything they do is a counterfeit. So they have a counterfeit of everything. And all of this and all of these ancient counterfeit writings and corrupted writings are going to be used to deceive people as we move into the end time. And if you don't think that everything's going to be a counterfeit, I mean, look at the false prophet. You're going to have Elijah and John the Baptist as uh, being counterfeited 
to make the way of Antichrist. Everything will be counterfeited. So this is just one of those counterfeit orders. And Antichrist will be the head priest at the crowning of the abomination of this Canaanite Melchizedek order. And I do talk about the Melchizedek order uh, late in my book. So if people want more information on it, you can get more information on it there. So, no, I, I don't really hold a lot of credibility. I find it an interesting story, but it doesn't stack up to what the Bible says. And when it goes in contradiction, I just kind of look and say, okay, interesting reading, probably part of the counterfeit. A really great point. And I appreciate that answer. And of course, if anybody could break down uh, the Book of Enoch and some of the specifics, I definitely would assume it would be you, Brother Gary. Uh, we appreciate all of the, the research that you have done. And of course, all glory to the Most High for leading you and providing uh, wisdom and understanding through your studies. So move on to the next question from Carlos Regadas. There's only one second coming. How can we be sure that this reset is the actual rapture? Not exactly sure what he's referring to. Maybe you have uh, more insight? Yeah, no. Um, I know of the global reset that people are talking about, and that's sort of sort of leading into the events of how do we get to this globalist sort of state and in, into the last seven years and, in, in, and into the, the rapture. It could be that Carlos might be referring to is that, you know, people have said a lot over the last couple thousand years that this is the time of the rapture and they're all wrong. And so I think the lesson from all of that is, is that we want to be very, very careful. Uh, prophecy tends to unfold in ways that, you know, we can't always anticipate, even though we get a lot of detail. I mean, just look at, the visible nation of Judah when they were in the covenant land in the time of Jesus and they had all the prophecies of their Messiah and they crucified him. Uh, so it doesn't always happen the way that you think it's going to happen. And, and so we have to be aware of that. And we also have to be aware of that. You can't have half the signs. You can't take half the scripture and just apply it. You have to apply all of the scripture and it has to mesh. And so I think that's one of the mistakes that the uh, the, the priesthood in um, Judea um, didn't do. They only chose the ones that they like. But I would encourage people to make things fit and put everything around what Jesus said. So he gives you the chronology. He gives you the major signs. So then put everything around what Jesus said. So. We're not at the time of rapture yet. There's still a lot of things that have to be put in place. And anybody who tells you that, um, you know, rapture is going to happen before other things have been fulfilled, then, you know, you, you need to you need to take a step back because they're they're ignoring some scripture. And so we're not close to the last seven years yet. We haven't seen antichrist rise yet and there's going to be many antichrists as uh, first john talks about and, and matthew talks about so we can't just sort of look at the first one there's going to be multiple of them but he'll have a false prophet to bring him about and at the time of antichrist being revealed and i know there's a lot of opinion on what that means i think it's when he's crowned in the temple and it fits best with jesus's chronology 
Um, and the words that he uses, you take that back to Greek because he uses that word and then, and then is tote at that time, thereafter, and then. It's, he's giving you the chronology and you've got the abomination at the midpoint. So I think um, if we just look at what Jesus is telling us and following his chronology, if we are in the fig tree generation that he listed, which I think is in, in my conclusion, if we are, it's because visible Judah has retaken uh, Jerusalem. And so if we're in the fig tree generation, which could be 70 years or 120 years, we don't know what the definition of that is. Genesis 6-3 and in, in Psalms 90, I think um, right off the top of my head is what I'm referring to for those 70 years and 120 years. And, and that generation may not last that full period. But I think if that's when the, click, the clock started, then we're in that fig tree generation and we are in the birth pangs and we should be following the birth pangs. And so you get sort of the, you know, the wars and the rumors of war that all these, these things have to take place first. And I think that's the period of the church um, that is being referenced there in Daniel 11, where you have all of these kings of the north and the kings of the south. But then we start to translation, a transition into though the other birth pangs of the uh, not only wars and rumors of wars, but now you're getting the pandemics and you're getting the earthquakes and you're getting the famine. And I think those are all contrived um, catastrophes. And we're and if we can look at what's going on in the world as they're trying to march towards globalism, which is one of those keys, uh, we have to have uh, a world government that's going to be on the rise. We have to have this universal religion, which is a long ways away. So we're going to need some false prophets come along before we can even start thinking about rapture. So um, I think we need to be very prudent. I think we need to keep an eye on things. I think all things are pointing in that direction. But all the prophecies are going to have to be fulfilled in the order that Jesus provided us. And we can't get ahead of that. And that's why I think we're going to have a period of what I would call a tragedy where Christians are losing credibility because they're saying, here is rapture. This guy's antichrist and he's not going to be the true antichrist. We're going to lose credibility because we are getting ahead of ourselves and i think we ought to be vocal but we have to try and be prudent as well in terms of making sure we've got the details right and we don't just discard certain parts of the prophecies whether it's old testament or new testament because it doesn't really fit what we're what we're trying to present out there so uh, but that's my approach and i know there's a lot of different approaches but i like to put everything around what jesus said and that is my recommendation Absolutely. Yeah, great points. And definitely appreciate you laying that out and, you know, clarifying, because I definitely agree with you that there is a lot of discrediting going on, especially in my generation where, you know, Scientology and scientism and all of these, you know, science-based religions, uh, they're, they're just growing phenomenally. You know, they're, the rates that they're taking over uh, – we used to be, you know, a very large Christian population here, or at least professed Christian population in America, and it's just like dwindling more and more continually. And you know, I, I'm not saying that it's all due to, you know, people trying to say that prophecies are going to be fulfilled at some specific time. You know, 
but you definitely hear about those types of things, you know, in the in the media. They definitely portray those, you know, where people are selling everything and sitting on top of their houses on certain days waiting for the rapture to happen and you know, the enemy definitely is is going to use all of our assumptions and all of our wrongs against us, everything that he can to definitely lead others astray and and to discredit us. So, you know, the one thing that that I encourage everyone to stand firm on is the gospel message of salvation. The the fact that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word which was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he went to the cross, died for our sins and rose again. That is the message that we stand firm on. Everything else is, you know, People can study it out for themselves. You know, I definitely appreciate uh, places like this where we can get together and discuss. But when it comes to being dogmatic about things, especially to non-believers, uh, it's it's important to just choose which rock you're willing to die on, you know, and, and take it seriously, your faith and what you're sharing. And I, I think that that message of salvation is is the crux that we should uh, place our faith and our whole uh, confidence in. So anyways, I'll get off my uh, high seat and move on to a question about a different seat. This question comes from Flyboy1960. What is the Bema seat judgment? What is its purpose? Who is it for? And where will it take place? Very, very good question. And a lot of people may not be familiar with the word bima because it's uh, a word that's used that comes out of Greek, and we'll get to that in, in a second. But understand that this was a seat that was used to make decisions of, and it was also part of the temple, at least uh, in the second temple for sure. And it was usually... Uh, an elevated seat um, that was sometimes in the temple as it's depicted with the ark and sometimes not, but it was usually two or three steps up. And uh, so it, it sort of has a history into at least the second temple. And also this is a concept that was used by the Greeks and King Herod and the Romans. And there's some passages that I won't bore people on some of it, but understand that this was more than just a, a Judaic sort of thing that they either created or uh, they was part of sort of the whole prophetic nature of everything that is is, is Israel and Judah. So, um, so we also have the seat of judgment that is used in Matthew twenty seven nineteen and, and John nineteen, and this is the seat of judgment that is used by the tribunal to convict um, Jesus um, by the Sanhedrin. So again, it sort of goes to support that idea that it was in that second temple for sure. But for me, and there's, and there's more other passages. And so the seat of judgment is, is, is the judgment is the Bema word where that comes from. And it's used for both um, seat and for judgment. So, it shows up a lot of times, and it's, it's kind of a conflated term, but it's the Greek word bima. 
And where it really sort of comes home to pay attention to is in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it's called the judgment seat of Jesus. So I think that might be where uh, Flyboy is coming from. Um, and it's a great question. So how does it fit, you know, in a sort of prophetic sort of period of time? I know of a few judgments. Um, one is uh, in Ezekiel 37 with the uh, the dry bones and Israel um, coming back to life and the second exodus coming in. Um, and all Israel will go under the seat of judgment of the Messiah that people in the end time that lost Israel awaken. And then Judah, after the sign in the sky in the second half, um, are going to accept Jesus as their savior, as the one that they pierced. They're going to mourn for him as for their an only son that they might have lost. And that's to bring them back in as part of the bride, part of the church, so that that's complete for Revelation 19 and, and, the, and, and the Supper, or Revelation 18 and the Supper. There's also a judgment that is going on for everybody who is going to be resurrected. I mean, we're all going to be judged. I mean, we are going to be saved because of our faith in, in Jesus and in God and the Holy Spirit. Then there's also a judgment seat at the resurrection of the dead at the end of the millennium for the, all the people who haven't been resurrected. And that's the time of the second deaths. So I think this Bema seat is essentially what Jesus is going to be judging from for the judgments. Great points. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Dale Stevenson. When the Hebrews exterminated the Nephilim, did they burn the crops? And if so, why? Um, I, I don't recall any scripture of them burning the crops. Um, what I do understand is that in Joshua and in Exodus, in Joshua 5, they were going to eat the crops of Canaan after the manna stopped. So once they started into the conquest aspect, they were going to eat the crops thereafter. I know of all living thing being killed. I know of burning the cities, killing the animals, killing... Uh, and all of the regulations of war, but I, I, I don't recall anything in there in, about the burning of the crops. So I'm thinking they didn't, but if there's a verse that I've missed, and uh, certainly in, in, in the number of accounts where it talks about some of the destruction, uh, maybe have somebody forward it to me, but I don't recall one that uh, has them burning the crops. Now, the larger question, though, is is why were all the other things done? It's because they were told to leave and that they had defiled the land. They had defiled the land through sexual immoral practices, through sacrifices to gods, through all sorts of different things that um, they did knowingly and knowing it was the land of God that he had reserved for himself and his get, was going to gift to his people. And they laid there in wait for Israel. And so there would have been a renewal of, of the land that was going on. But 
Um, I'm if you know if I've overlooked a verse in terms of, of burning the crops, I, I I don't think there is one there, but um, have you know somebody can send that to me if that's true. But I do not believe the crops were burned at this point. Yeah, really great question, great answer. And our next question is also really interesting. I feel like all these questions have been so interesting, but. Uh, this one, you know, when Joy and I traveled around the world to different museums and, and into the Middle East, you see this so often. And Sarang uh, points it out in his question. Can you speculate on what the bag is being carried by beings and deities depicted all over the world? Yeah, it's a, it's it's one of those huge mysteries, and it's basically the most popular versions are the ones in Sumeria with the Anunnaki, and uh, they're depicted with this bag, and then in the other hand, they'll have this uh, pine cone or crystal, um, and in the larger images. You've got these Anunnaki on both sides, whether or not they're demigods or gods. Uh, we don't know, but seemingly they were likely fallen angels. And they're surrounding it almost like this ritual-like thing into almost like this tree of life type of thing, only it's uh, not really a, a, a real tree. It's like a technology. And I think technology was a big part of the reign of the angels before the flood and maybe even to a certain degree again after the flood before you know they they disappear and i think the baalim went to the uh abyss as well for the same crimes as the angels before the flood but that's another rabbit hole uh staying on topic um you have this this use in a ritual of this bag and the technology and whether or not it is in Greek mythology or it is in Canaanite mythology or other mythologies, you have these technological things that the angels did regularly. One of them would have been their flying chariots, and some of them had horses drawn, and some of them would be unicorn-like, and some of them would have been just white horses. And the chariots and the spirits were in the in in the wheels um so there was another entity that was funneling their wheels and it's all very 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 similar to a counterfeit of god's chariot that ezekiel saw in his vision in ezekiel 1 and ezekiel 10 and that the ophanium were in the in the wheels the ophanium or the eyes are within the eel in the wheels and that wheel means chariot and it also means um a wheel and these are a uh, cherubim-like spirit that are in the wheel. So there's this technology that Jesus or that Ezekiel sees in his vision for the throne of God, um, and that's duplicated in polytheism all around the world, particularly in the Greek mythology. And and again, this idea of this chariot and the, and, and the mythos and the ancient alien mythos of this chariot of the gods is like okay, this was something like a spaceship, not really a chariot. We don't know what these these flying vehicles were, but they had these weapons in other uh, all throughout polytheist mythology and religions. These gods and demigods have these fantastic 
high-tech weapons. They have they throw thunderbolts. They've got these powerful hammer things, and they've got things, missiles that they can launch that can destroy the world. They are technologically driven using technology within the physical world that probably also might have included some of those vibration technologies we were talking about earlier in the show. And they, they did that to manipulate this world. And so we have this ritual, bringing this back to the Anunnaki or, you know, over in Central America. And, and as Sarang says, these things have similar looks to the this technology all around the world and doing in using it in a similar manner. I think their technology, I think the I think it's a crystal, not a pine cone, but it's something that is holds knowledge and is computer like and something you can plug in and you've got almost like this other high tech or or uh, power source and it's going into this what they would say in the mythos is like a tree of life. So a tree of energy. And so I think there's a technology thing that's going on there, but that's my speculation. I mean, nobody really knows, but that's kind of my speculation. And, uh, and I know uh, there's a lot of different versions on it, but that's how I reckon what it might be depicting. Yeah, really. Uh, great points. Definitely appreciate that. So many interesting little artifacts, you know, in, in the ancient times that are in the archaeology and in the murals that are carved into the stones that we, we can't quite identify. So really appreciate you bringing that up and appreciate that answer, Brother Gary. So we'll move on to another question from Brother Sarang. Uh, we kind of touched on this earlier, but I will read it. In Acts 7.43 and Amos 5.25-27, it says something along the lines of, And the star of your god, Remphan. What is the oldest archaeological example of this hexagram star with six points, six triangles, and six sides? And how can this be related to the hexagram on the Israeli flag and the Jews allowing the Antichrist to enter the temple? Really good question. Are you still with us, Brother Gray? I am. I had uh, muted. I apologize for that. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, this is a very, very good question. And Sarang is so good on the details and even like pointing out the uh, 666 aspect of it. And, and all of this is kind of has this occult counterfeiting that's going on for the end time. And, I, 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 you know, when I say counterfeit, I mean, every. Everything's going to be counterfeited, like a counterfeit, uh, counterfeit prophet for the, the, the Antichrist, yeah. the counterfeit religion, the counterfeit uh, Christian religion, where it has, you know, it will be a polytheist religion that has, you know, two horns but speak like speaks like a dragon. So this is this is something we need to be always aware of in in how they're counterfeiting things. So we see the uh, the six. Uh, pointed star show up basically representing Zionism and the movement to take Israel back in 1897 um, at the Zionist conference. And 
this is the start of what I would call the mystical Jews or the Kabbalistic Jews or the satanic Jews with their push to bring you know, about the end time from within the secret societies. And they're going to put one of their great sort of markers on this symbolism as they're counterfeiting everything. So you could look at the satanic Jews as counterfeit Jews um, that Revelation is talking about. And so the six-pointed star is a Rosicrucian symbol and an ancient Rosicrucian symbol and they and they come by via not just Kabbalism but the hexagram uh, symbols in Hinduism with the mandala and others and from China and from many many of their sort of Gnostic or global Gnostic uh, history um, you know we get a symbol of this in the 13th century with a false messiah type figure from one of the Karzarian Jew sects in Kurdistan and his name was Amenahem Banduji if I pronounced it right and his given name for his antichrist figure is David Al Roy and of course AL is a transliteration for uh, an angel or a god it just says EL is the Hebrew version and Roy is king, so he's king, you know, King David of God or King David the God, and he was this Antichrist figure, and he used the six-pointed star, which is interesting. So one might expect that this legacy will be part of Antichrist as he has falsified bloodlines saying that he is uh, a descendant of, of, of Jesus. Um, because I think for the Jewish people to accept him in the first three and a half years, even though they're going to be permitted to do the uh, sacrifice on a wing of the temple, an extremity or an overspreading, depending on which uh, translation of English you're using on that, um, for them to sort of acknowledge that this might be um, the Messiah coming and having and giving them the opportunity to gain access to the temple, he's going to have to have some sort of Jewish, Jewish pedigree. So I think that symbolism kind of becomes important. And when we look at this symbol um, that's in a circle, just understand the gematria and the occultism that's in there is that every point um, touches a piece of the circle at the same radius of the six sides. I mean, again, it's that sacred geometry that is um, encoded in everything that they do, and it goes into all sorts of different meanings, just like the number six and the, and the three is all important to them, and many other numbers. I won't go into all of that because the answer will be too long. It also shows up in 1527 on, on a Jewish flag. But as you're saying, these are fairly sort of modern dates. And we don't really see this symbolism till after about 1000 AD. So it's more of a recent thing, and it was more part of the polytheist belief system before. And, and so the oldest record that I've found in, in the past when I was researching this, that um, there was this, this uh, inscription of... Astart that goes back to Armenia to the third millennium that basically has a depiction of Astart uh, and or Astaroth because they're kind of 
uh, melded together um, on a on a relief uh, with a six pointed star in a circle, and that's interesting biblically because in Judges two thirteen and few in some of the verses before and the, some of the verses after we're talking about the Baalim again of Mount Hermon uh, the 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 ones who replaced the parent gods led by El and Baal is associated with Astaroth which is again um, just a, another transliteration of Astart and there's several different names in each of the pantheons that the same goddess of fertility um, is associated with and there's a city in Bashan named Astaroth and in, in Judges 13 it lists Balim and Ashtaroth and Ashtaroth means a star so this Ashtaroth images that goes back as far as the third millennium BC and then probably in the time of Israel and taking of the covenant land um, in you know somewhere circa around 1400 BC uh, with the time, you know, with uh, the war with uh, King Og and King Sihon and taking of Bashan and Ashtaroth, um, this all sort of comes in, into play. And so Ashtaroth means star, and that's why she's depicted with that six-pointed star. So this is, uh, this is part of that dualistic polytheist religion that's coming for the end time that's going to be the counterfeit uh, Christian religion that you know, takes it over from the inside and turns it into polytheism and de-deifies Jesus and a whole bunch of things that we don't have time to talk about tonight. But understand that I expect that this will be a significant symbol of Antichrist um, coming to power. And I could be wrong, but just the legacy seems to be there, particularly when you look at it's going to be, you know, the Balim uh, and the ones who replaced the Balim, who are now running the Council of Gods, ruling from Mount Hermon, who I think Antichrist is going to be helped by in a significant way, uh, even before the release of the angels from the abyss. Now, I do understand that in Revelation 13 that Antichrist gets the power from the dragon but I think it's that whole sort of fallen angel thing uh, that is going to help uh, make Antichrist a demigod-like looking figure and a plausible candidate uh, to be the actual Messiah, so much so it will deceive the elect if that were possible. And, God, and Jesus has warned us it is possible and it will happen. Excellent answer, and we're moving on to the last question from the pre-made list. This one comes from Brian, and it kind of carries on a little bit from the last question. Every nation and state has a flag with symbols and designs all over it. Have you ever seen any of the things you study in them? I think if it's talking about imagery of the gods and the fallen angels you see that all of the time in in some of the things in their belief systems you see more of it in the coat of arms of their genealogies you, know, you have unicorns and you have lion gods and you have eagle gods like the anunnaki and you've got dragons and serpents which are the seraphim and the coat of arms has 
you know, the different bloodlines that are signed in. So when you see different animals, um, they're actually representative of, of part of the angels. And so if you look at the Ogdo gods of Egypt, they've got all sorts of different kinds, and those were the parent gods. And just, just as you also have these gods likely producing the alignment of Moab and all of these other different kinds of Nephilim, that's what's going on. So we don't get quite that sort of in-your-face symbolism, but, you know, anytime you start to see eagles and some of these things, um, and the imagery that they're usually telling you on a flag isn't the real imagery um, that they're trying to uh, transmit through taciturn uh, taciturn language. So I think... Um, have I seen some of it? Yes, but it's not nearly as as sort of occultic as the coat of arms. So uh, now if the question is, have I ever seen any of these things personally as beings, the answer to that would be no. But I'm thinking more it was some of the imageries that you see on some of the flags around the world. You know, do they sort of show up in terms of the genealogies or the history? Yes, they, they're there to reflect all of that. So... Um, and, you know, you've got, you know, well, I won't go any further, but I think people get the, get the, get the drift of what I'm saying. Awesome. And with the end of the pre-made list, you know what time it is. It is time for our pop quiz for Brother Gary Wayne. And we will be moving on to live questions. And it was first come, first serve. If you were joining in the YouTube live stream, I have been taking down all the questions that I could find. And putting them on the list, if we don't get to them tonight, we will add them to the list for next month's Ask Me Anything with Brother Gary Wayne. Uh, so, first question from tonight, from the live questions, comes from MJM. Did the prophet Ezekiel give a warning to the Nephilim world order that they would be taken down by the true God of the Bible? And if so, please provide details. Oh, I think so. I mean, Ezekiel 28 would be a classic example of that. And you have not only the Trubim Satan, but you also have uh, Tyrus in there. And Tyrus is one of the terrible ones. Ter Tyrus is one of the, the Raphaim descended kings. And just as in, in, in Isaiah, you know, they're going to go down to the pit. Now you move forward in some of the other passages that are in 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 ezekiel whether it's 29 or 30 i think 32 is is a real good representation um where you have the terrible ones that are brought up again uh, in ezekiel and these are the ones that are talking to pharaoh who would be another one of the terrible ones understanding nebuchadnezzar is the most terrible of nations as he's described and also one of the terrible ones and one of the beast empires and that you have the worst of these terrible ones, probably one presumes the Nephilim before the flood and the worst of the Nephilim after the ones, the one who's, who did terrible things on the earth while they were alive and were slain, they are imprisoned in the sides of the abyss. And so I think all of this is, is telling them that you know they're they're going to be defeated that they that they cannot win um but the problem is is that you've got 
you know, the fallen angels that are leading uh, the 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 Raphaim on and, and the blood descendants on that, that, that they can win. So I think when you look at Ezekiel and then you look at the Gog and Magog war, I think that's a significant prophecy that tells them that they're going to lose. I mean, um, that's not the complete uh, Raphaim, Nephilim world order in, in, in the last seven years, but a huge part of them are wiped out as God defends the people of Judah in that alliance. And as I mentioned earlier, that's the Joel 1 and 2 war and Revelation 9 war. So I think there's lots of examples within within Ezekiel that is warning the Raphaim after the flood and their descendants and their followers that if they want to take the time to read that they're going to lose in the end time. Absolutely. Thank you for that answer. The next question comes from Tommy Anakin. What was going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we doing similar sins in these days? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah are known in the occult world as cities of light, cities of knowledge, cities of freedom, cities opposing the evil God of the Bible as they would present it. And that's how things are kind of being set up in the end time. And then from that follows all of the sexual immoralities, uh, sexual freedoms as, as and sexual tolerance as what the doctrine goes today in all sorts of formats. And then you have this interesting sort of mix in there where some of the residents of Sodom are wanting to have sex with who with the, the two angels who are in the form of human males, but they know they're angels. And so there's this sort of subtext that they know that these are angels that can take a human form and they could take a form of a woman if they wanted or not because again in in a lot of writings the uh, uh homosexuality was a, a big part of the the nephilim and part of the raphaim belief system and sexual immortality immoralities after the uh after the flood just as you have all of that going on with the Canaanites uh, that are written into the Leviticus law of, of how they defiled the land. Um, so I think you have that thing about going on in there that they may want to be also been on the other hand that if they could, if the angels were able to uh, take a human form or, and a woman form that maybe they would change that and they could reproduce some more Rephaim after the flood. And I think that is kind of one of the areas where we're going uh, towards in the end time, where they can create a new Atlantis or an age where the gods intermixed with humans before, uh, before the flood and mated with them to create the Nephilim and then created the Raphaim again after the flood. So I think all of that is coming into play as the allegory, even to the point when Antichrist takes over and he's going to kill the two witnesses and he's in Jerusalem, he is going to kill the two witnesses in the city figuratively called Sodom because they're going to turn Jerusalem into the new Sodom or the new Gomorrah. Wow. 
Wow, fantastic answers. Thank you very much. Uh, the second part of his question was, why did the Most High let the giant Og hang out on the Ark? I think that was preserved in the Aramaic Targum. I'm not sure about uh, any other texts that talk about that. Well, it's in, in Jewish mythology as well. Um, it's uh, in the Targum, as, as, as you mentioned, um, and, but it's not in the Bible. And uh, sometimes that that mythology goes with Tubal Cain as hanging on the ark. Um, and that, you know, when we look at the last Noah movie, it's Tubal Cain that's hanging on, on, on the ark. So there, there is that story that's outside the Bible to sort of, I think, create this understanding of how possibly Nephilim survived the flood. And King Og is considered the last of the Raphaim, the last of the giants, not the last of the Nephilim. So I don't think it's Og because Raphaim are somehow different than the Nephilim. And we only get Nephilim that shows up three times in the Bible for giant. That's in Genesis 6, 4. And then twice in the embellished part of the evil report, in Numbers 13.33, where it's calling the Anakim Nephilim. The Anakim were giants, but they weren't Nephilim. The Anakim, as documented in Deuteronomy 2, are giants that goes back to the word Rapha, and the male plural I am is um, Raphaim. So these are Raphaim uh, branches of nations, just as Og is the last of the giants, and a Rapha going back to giant as Rafa Raphaim as well. So I, I don't believe that he survived the flood. I believe he was recreated by the Balim, the offspring gods after the flood, which is why King Og, you know, had his kingdom in Bashan, in Mount Hermon, and included Edrai and Ashtaroth that we've talked about as the fertility goddess. And the Balim were his gods. And I think those Balim, for their crimes, went to the abyss after the flood as well. So I look at that. I'm open to the idea that Nephilim survived the flood, but um, and we do get accounts all around the world about giants surviving the flood, and even in the Epic of Gilgamesh with Epneptitian uh, being uh, the Sumerian um, Noah, but really a Sumerian giant because he's two-thirds God and one-third human, and so is his family. So it's a giant survival story. Um, but you also get uh, uh, Anakadon and Gilgamesh being created after the flood as a second incursion as well. So it's kind of showing both. But for me, I, I lean more towards a, a second incursion. So, And it just sort of makes more sense sort of biblically in terms of where the tribes of Canaan come from, who are patriarchists from the Rephaim, and that the Nephilim don't, is not used after the flood, just that term Rephaim. So that's how I would answer that. Yeah, we appreciate it, Brother Gray. And we'll see you all next month at September 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern Time for our next AMA. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. And thank you again, Brother Gray. That was an awesome show. Shalom, everyone, and good night. Every day, questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? 
Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.